Aren't you guys excited? We're entering into a new political season. Oh, don't we just love it? Uh, this next year, I'm sure it's going to be wonderful. Nothing bad, nothing disturbing, nothing to see with this coming election and all that. Uh, you know, times haven't changed all that much. And Jesus is going to face some, interestingly enough, uh, this evening, some political questions about justice. Um, and he's going to also uh, face a list of other questions and things like that. Um, they're, you know, a lot of times they're trying to trap him to make him say something. I think we do that today in politics. We try to find something that somebody says that we can trick them and trap them and twist their words and make a little media post about something someone said. Uh, and it comes from all directions. I've noticed, uh, you know, just the manipulation and the rhetoric. It's hard to believe anything you hear and see uh, anymore. But uh, times really haven't changed all of them. Technology's made it a little more deceiving, uh, perhaps, than it was back in the first century. But uh, people would twist words and, and do stuff like that. And that's kind of what we're going to see Jesus facing. But Jesus handled these things so uh, perfectly. And so as we uh, finished last Wednesday night, chapter 12, we pick it up in chapter 13. And this first section, verses 1 through 9, uh, is actually uh, uh, this section that I'm going to sort of call the... the um, the place where they give this political question about justice. It's a political question about justice. Let's pick it up in verse one. It says there in verse one of chapter 13, there were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. These first five verses, we saw, you know, this um, uh, two tragic situations. One was man-made or man-caused, Pilate, killing the Galilean men there on the Temple Mount. Um, it was a, quite a disruption, terrorist activity, you might say, or, uh, you know, discuss. Um, but uh, the second thing was more of a, uh, a natural cataclysmic uh, event, uh, the Tower of Siloam. We don't know anything about that, but 18 people were killed, apparently. And Jesus answers their question, you know, hey, did you hear about this? And they're wanting to, to, to answer it, but there's an implication. They, they had already a preconceived notion. Have you ever felt like somebody's asking you a question, but they already kind of have their mind made up about something? And they're just saying, hey, what do you think about this? But you know, they already have an opinion. Well, Jesus knew that better than we do. Uh, and so his answer might shock us a little bit. But, um, you know, the first thing he reaches into is, you guys think these guys died because they must have deserved it somehow. And that was the mentality of the day. We looked at this on Sunday, verses one through five, and saw how Jesus said, um, basically, you know, forget that part of it. No, they didn't, they didn't die because they were guilty, more guilty than anybody else or less guilty than anybody else. Um, but then his answer was shocking when he said, um, guess what? Unless you repent, you're all gonna die. Um, and we talked about what that meant. And he wasn't just talking about um, biological death. He was talking about eternal death. That's where repentance comes in. Um, and, you know, we talked about why do bad things happen to good people? The answer, there are no good people. We're all sinners. We all fall short. Humanity is in a fallen, sinful state, all of us. 
uh, even your most kind-hearted grandmother. We're all sinful, uh, wretched, miserable sinners. Um, but that's the bad news. The good news is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So that's the unless part. Unless you repent and believe in Jesus, you're gonna die for all eternity. And, uh, and, and, uh, and this answer would have been somewhat shocking. Um, now, some people think the next section here uh, in verses six through nine is a totally separate topic. But um, it's my opinion that Jesus is continuing the discussion, particularly about repentance. That's what this first section was about. Unless you repent, um, you're gonna die just like those guys. And then he, he tells this little parable. Let's pick it up in verse six. Um, he also spake, or spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of the vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. The end. Does that seem like kind of a cut off parable? Like, where's the rest of it? What happened? We're, we're, we're hanging on every word as we're waiting. What's gonna happen with the fig tree? And the answer is, who has, who knows? We don't know what happens, but I think that's on purpose because it leaves a question that is the question for you and for me. Um, you see, this is an open-ended story and it forces us to think about what does this mean for us? The answer um, may be answered best by you tonight. What happened to the fig tree that needs to be um, digged and dunned? What? Digged and dunned. It's hard to say that three times really fast. Um, but digged and dunged, what does that all mean? Um, it's, it's symbology in the Bible. First of all, the symbols of the parables are often important. And, um, the fig tree is my opinion that um, we're, we're often talking about Israel. Um, Jesus is talking to the Jews here uh, in this parable. And he, I think he's talking nationally to Israel, but he's also probably talking individually to the Jews that are standing in front of him. But also I think it translates back all the way to Portland, Oregon, us as well. But the ultimate uh, symbol is fruitless fig tree, the fruitless Israel at the time. They were religious, but the religion had lost its meaning and it became fruitless. The religion of Israel, by the time Jesus came on the scene, was just a political, uh, weak, uh, so-called religion that really was um, without any power or any truth. Um, and that can happen to us as well today. Um, you know, sometimes I think we forget what we exist to do. What is the purpose for living? We were created, Revelation 4 talks about verse 11, we were created for his pleasure. Uh, that's why you and I were created, to please God the Father and to bring forth good fruit. See, these, these trees were not bringing fruit that was pleasing to the, the one who owns the vineyard. And that's the question you and I have to ask. Um, you know, and so we got the fig tree here as a, as a type of Israel and also perhaps us. You have the dresser, who's the farmer taking care of the vineyard, um, and, um, and then all throughout the Bible, this idea of a vineyard, the vine and the branches, uh, you know, Jesus said, John 15, one, I am the, the true vine and my father is the husbandman. So the, what does the vine dresser do? As it turns out, um, the two things that are mentioned here, dig it and dung it. Uh, what does that all mean? 
um, to dig around the roots, find the source of the problem, making sure the roots are healthy and making sure it's, they're deeply rooted in the ground and the soil. Um, before we can bear good fruit, we need to get to the core of the problem. And the core of the problem for us and for Israel is that we're all sinners and we have need for repentance. Um, that's, that's sort of the idea of digging it, is getting to the root of the problem, uh, making sure the soil is good and amended and all that to make a healthy tree. Second is to dung it. Uh, that means to manure. Now, this is something I'm very well, well acquainted with. I'm somewhat of an expert on dung, uh, among a few other things. But uh, when I was a kid, I, I was uh, in charge of collecting the cow pies from the field. And there was a certain time that was really good to pick up the cow pie, and there was a certain time it wasn't really good to pick it up. It was all timing, you know, we will pick up no cow pie before it's time. Um, and, uh, you know, you kind of wait till it's at a certain consistency, then you can pitchfork it and get it in the wheelbarrow. Um, uh, now, um, you're saying, Brett, that's too much information. But, but the reason I say that is um, we had an amazing garden when I grew up as a kid. And it was because we would, you know, keep a pile of our cow pies from our field and we'd mix it into the soil and let it, let the kind of the heat of the, the manure burn off a little bit and uh, uh, along with chicken manure. <laughs> I, I'm an expert on manure, I'm telling you. My grandfather, he, he was also an expert on manure, I'll tell you. Um, it was pretty funny, he had this beautiful garden because he, he brought chicken manure in, which the neighbors loved that every year when he brought that in. But, um, but because his, his garden was so prolific, um, we, uh, we had this huge problem with deer. Uh, just hundreds of deer would come to his garden. And he even built a big fence and the deer would just hop over this like 12 foot fence. It was kind of amazing really. Um, but so what he did is he went down the road. You see down the road from my house, as it turns out, you know the MGM lion that you see before movies? That lion lived a mile from my house. Um, it, there was an animal actor's farm just uh, down in Applegate. Uh, Disney used all their animals. There's bears and lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, it was amazing. Um, <laughs> But I could hear that lion roar every night when I'd go to bed before they'd feed it. You hear this deep, a mile away, this deep roar. Well, anyway, my grandpa would go down there every so often and get lion manure, a little, little trailer load, break it down to his little farm and put it all around his garden. We didn't see a deer from that day forward. I bet deer, <laughs> I bet deer don't even go there to this day. Like, like, it's amazing how that lion manure trick worked. That somehow deer knew, whatever that left that, let's get out of here. Uh, that, there's something about it. Anyway. I told you I was an expert at this stuff, but, <laughs> but that's what, what you gotta do is you gotta get the, the soil amended, make sure the root system is good and then fertilize it and care for it and tend it. Otherwise, it's just gonna continue to be a fruitless tree. That's the idea. So the question that's left here is, you know, um, uh, what, what, what are you gonna do? Like, uh, and what does it mean to dung and to amend the soil? I think getting to the root of the problem is kind of part of the idea. What does it mean to dung? I'm sort of reminded a little bit of um, maybe what Paul the Apostle said in Philippians 3.8, as far as expositional constancy and what the Bible talks about. Um, Yea, doubtless, Paul said, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Um, Paul starts before giving all of his credentials, you know, um, uh, you know, in fact, earlier in that part, he says, you know, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. He's saying, I was a, I was a Pharisee of a Pharisee um, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, touching the law of Pharisee concerning zeal in the church. He said, I count all that stuff as dumb. That's what he said. 
Um, all of his accolades are just dung. And sometimes I wonder if before we can be used mightily and be fruitful in our lives, we need to first um, you know, dig, get to the root of the problem that we're failed, flawed, miserable people that are sinful. And second, we need to dung. That is realize that our best works are like filthy rags and dung in and of themselves and realize that apart from God, we really can do nothing. I think Moses was a guy who, before he could be fruitful in his life, he had to kind of learn that dung lesson. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing. When you look at Moses's life, it's broken into 40 year chunks. The first 40 years he spent in Egypt becoming, becoming someone, a person of stature and substance and wealth and power. He was slated to be the next Pharaoh in line. But the second 40 years he spent his life becoming no one. The first 40 years he was becoming someone. In fact, Josephus writes that Moses already had war. He was a war hero by the age of 20. He had conquered Ethiopia, according to Josephus, by the age of 20. Um, all this, these exploits, but then suddenly he's out of Egypt and he's in the backside of the desert being a shepherd in the land of Midian. To the Egyptians, that's the worst thing you could ever imagine happening to a person. Uh, a shepherd was an abomination to an Egyptian person. Um, so Moses is out now, spending the next 40 years of his life, becoming nobody. There's an interesting tiny little symbol in there that's kind of interesting too. Um, in, in the Bible, when a man would walk around with a staff, that staff was sort of a symbol of his authority. This would happen for low-life people all the way up to the kings where they'd have a scepter. You know, whatever your staff was, it kind of had a, it was a symbol of your, uh, who you were as a man or your authority. Um, do you remember what Moses had to do with his staff before he went and led the children of Israel out of Egypt? The Lord had him throw it down on the ground. Um, that's kind of an interesting thing. And, and what did it become? A snake. Um, and then what did he do? He picked it up by the tail. The, he threw it down, picked it up by the tail. It's almost like in symbols of the Bible, you almost wonder if Moses had to kind of get to that point realizing, you know, my authority and who I am, it's nothing. Throw it down, <clears throat> pick it up and realize Without the Lord, you can do nothing. Um, I wonder if some of us need to throw down, but Lord, I'm a, I'm a self-made man. Look what I've done with my life. And I have talent and gifts. Lord, you, I'm, you better be glad I'm on your team. Uh, time to throw it down. Time to throw it on the ground and realize what it is. It's just a snake. That's all it is. Your talents, your giftings, your, your smarts, uh, whatever you think you have to offer to the Lord. Uh, you got nothing. Neither do I. Without him, we can do nothing. We are nothing. We really could ever hope to be nothing apart from the Lord. Um, but Moses, once he gets to that place where he's, he, he's actually on the backside of the desert and he actually, uh, there's a part of the story that implies that he's content to be there the rest of his life. Once he's finally content and like, I'll just be a shepherd with my wife and my kids out here in the middle of nowhere, I'm happy. And the Lord says, now you're ready. Now you're ready. I wonder if some of you are held back right now because you're still thinking you have the scepter of authority and that you are someone to be reckoned with. And the Lord's saying, well, I'll use you once you kind of figure out it's just dumb. That's all it is. Um, and, uh, and then once you realize that, then the Lord's, oh, now I can use you. So dig it and done it, dung it. That's the idea there. Um, that's why I think 1 Corinthians 1.27, you guys know it well, um, you know, but God hath chosen the weak the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, um, the weak things of the world to confound those which are mighty. That's what the Bible says. And why does this happen? I think the reason the Lord wants us to get to that place is so that we never question where the credit belongs. God is the one who deserves credit for any good thing that any of us ever do. Um, and it's hard to even say we've done something good because we really realize without him, we can do nothing. So that's the right mindset. 
So um, what happened to the fig tree? Did it get better? Did it start bearing fruit? The question lies with you. That's why I think this, this story is left sort of undone. So verses one through nine actually still, um, I think is all connected with verses one through five, those, because it has to do with repentance still. Uh, learning that, that we're all sinners and unless you repent, you really can't do anything or go anywhere or make a difference in a good way in your life unless you repent. I think that's all tied together, verses one through nine. So that's that first section, a political question about justice. What about these guys that died? And Jesus turned it around from a political question to actually a spiritual um, question about a person's readiness for heaven and eternity. Interesting. I wonder if you and I should maybe try to be like Jesus in that. When you get political questions coming your way, maybe to try to get the issue back to what really matters. Because it doesn't matter as much um, who's the next president of the United States. What matters more is, are you gonna go to heaven or hell? Because that's really what Jesus turned it around to, didn't he? He turned around, what about those guys who were slaughtered by Pilate on the Temple Mount? Um, You're gonna die just like them, are you ready for that? And are you prepared uh, to die? Have you repented of your sins and accepted Jesus Christ? Man, wise would be uh, the person who moves the conversation to something that actually matters more. Brett, isn't the president of the United States matter? It it matters, um, I've noticed, but the older I get, I might say it matters for the next 10 minutes and then there's gonna be another president and they all come and go and we all seem to be in kind of worse condition after every time, doesn't matter who. Like it's, it's, it's like, uh, Brett, you sound pretty disillusioned by political, uh, yes, exactly, good eye. Um, I'm thankful I'm a citizen of heaven. My hope is in the Lord and I look forward to the rapture of the church. But until then, I'm gonna keep preaching the gospel and doing what the Lord's called me to do. So uh, there it is. Um, so number one, a political question about justice verses one through nine. Um, number two, a, a, a legal question about the Sabbath day we see in verses 10 through 22. Let's take a look. It says in verse 10, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And beheld, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift herself up. Um, what, what is this, this, this poor lady? Was she like a hunchback? Um, maybe. Um, there's a condition today that's still, uh, when people are bent over, some people are literally bent over to where their head's almost like down to their knees. Um, it's a, um, it's a camp decormia is what it's called. It's a horrible condition. And many scholars believe that's maybe what she had. Um, a painful, for 18 years, had bent over and couldn't stand upright. Um, what, a, what a horrible situation. Um, you know, what, what did she choose to do in her current situation? Um, I, I find it interesting. We find her here in the synagogue um, even though she's a hunchback or bent over in a horrible way, she's in the, um, the synagogue. And I find that interesting that um, her pain and her suffering didn't keep her from going to the synagogue on a Saturday. That's kind of an interesting thing. Um, what keeps you from church on a Sunday or a Saturday um, here at Athey Creek? Uh, bad hair day? Uh, it's raining outside. Uh, we live in Portland. Hello. Uh, that's part of our deal here. Uh, I, um, I know we don't have that problem. You know, last, last Sunday was dark and stormy and rainy, and uh, it was one of our biggest Sundays ever. People were piling in here. I don't, uh, I, I don't think rain's di- you know, dissuading us from coming to church, but um, maybe talking to some people watching online uh, you know, that don't, don't go to church, when maybe some of you should uh, find a place to go to church. Oh, I don't know. I don't feel very good today. Uh, this lady was, had this horrible condition, but she finds herself still 
going to the synagogue? What does she choose to do with her time? Um, I think that's important. Um, and so, you know, don't make ex excuses. I think sometimes the Lord wants to deal with us. And sometimes we have to get up and go, even if it is a little painful. Um, it's best for our, um, you know, our, our person to meet with people and pray with others and, and see people face to face. Um, oftentimes I've noticed being at church is, is um, I don't know how to say this, um, you know, during COVID, everybody, you know, went and started getting more familiar with online church. And we've seen the blessings of that too. But um, if there's any way possible that you can plug into a church locally, if you're watching online right now, and uh, if you've made Athey Creek your only church, um, I, I think a watch party becomes closer because you have people over to your house, there's fellowship, and we try to cover those watch parties like a, uh, as a church would uh, cover. And, and I see real validity there. But if you're the Lone Ranger just by yourself watching online and not going to church, and you become more comfortable with that, and, and you can still go to a church, uh, you really need to uh, get in there and, and get the help and fellowship and be a part of a church. Uh, it's part of the deal. Um, this is important. Well, uh, anyway, uh, the, this, the, the first thing we see here is the Lord is going to set this woman free. Verse 12, um, and when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. Um, I love, I love this. Do you get a sense Jesus was screaming, woman, lie your hand in the name of me. Is that what he said? No, that's just, that's just the crazy guys on TV. Do you, I get a sense that Jesus is very calm here and he sees this poor hunchback woman and he says, woman, gune is the Greek word. Does that ring a bell? It's a term of endearment. We talked about this before. He's, he's not like woman. It's not like that at all. It's more like, it's the same term of endearment he would use for his mother, his own mother. So he says, woman, and, he's, and he says, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. Like, like this is really a calm statement uh, that, that um, uh, is so cool in verse 13. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Uh, first, First thing we see is liberation for the woman here. I love that she's freed, freed up from her oppressive, uh, you know, infirmity of 18 years. Um, and I love this. Uh, the language here kind of cracks me up a little bit. Um, you know how uh, people steal our language? You guys know what I'm talking about? I remember when gay was what you sang about at Christmas time, you know, um, and the Flintstones had a gay old time and it had nothing to do with homosexuality and um, straight meant, you know, like a line, a straight line straight and gay. Um, they stole our term. So I'm going to steal it back here. Notice in verse 13, he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Um, you know, straight for us meant directly from point A to point B without a curve or bend. Um, that's kind of what straight means. But, um, you know, when they want to hijack our words um, uh, and be politically correct and all that, uh, no matter what the sin, did you know the Lord wants to straighten us out? No matter what the sin, whether it's homosexuality or anger or greed or um, whatever struggle we have, the Lord can make us straight. Um, and I, I, you're just doing a play on words. It's interesting, you know, there's a lot of people in you know, colleges and universities and churches now that have adopted, hey, we're not gonna try to make you straight. If you're gay, you can come to our church and you can be the way you are. You can be homosexual and, and be feel good about it. We're gonna accept you as you are. That's the language. Um, the problem with that is, um, you know, the, the, the idea of homosexuality and, and, you know, being gay or straight, the Bible actually still calls that sin. 
And um, one of the things we need to understand is the Lord wants to help us and fix our, our sinful stuff. So whether you're a gay person or an angry person or you struggle with lust or you know, greed or whatever your problem is, the Lord can straighten you out. But for some reason, we as churches, pastors, and Christian universities, we've thought we well, need to soften that particular topic and not make sure, we don't, whatever you do, don't try to straighten out a, a homosexual. Um, if you read George Fox's um, you know, handbook uh, and go on their website, what, what's their position on homosexuality? It's definitely, we will not try to change you at all. No, no change for the gay person. We will, you're welcome to come and not be changed at all. Um, man, what a bummer for a college. I, hope, I would hope a good, solid Christian university would say, uh, we're gonna help uh, straighten out all of our kids from all their things and teach them how to be changed and transformed. That's what it's all about. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Somewhere along the way, we've, we've said, no, let's be conformed. Let's be conformed to this world and don't say anything that makes anybody upset. Um, that's the bummer about the whole thing. Um, don't you know I was born this way, Pastor Brett? Uh, people say, and I'll say, yeah, we were all born in sin. Like, I'll give that to you. Yep, you were born that way. Just like the angry man was born that way and the person who's greedy was born that way. We were all born in sin, but the Lord says, but I wanna free you from that. I wanna free you from that which plagues you. And I love that this woman is there crooked and the Lord straightens her out because he loves her and cares about her. Um, so, um, you know, be careful about, I was born this way and be careful about those who are saying, we're not gonna try to straighten out lives um, because we don't wanna step on toes. Watch out for that mentality. The Lord is in the business of fixing people, transforming us, changing us. That's the whole deal. We wanna be changed. I hope we're all changed. Um, so kind of an important part of this. Um, the, the Lord is able to hear and get things back from being bent out of shape uh, this, I love this picture here. It's just such a beautiful thing. Um, um, so um, all that to say, so the first thing we see is this, this, this poor woman who's been 18 years bent over. Now she's healed. Um, one thing I also would like to point out is, um, uh, did you ever notice in all these stories, Jesus, when he goes in the synagogue, it seems to me like one of the first things he does is looks for who needs the help the most. Have you ever noticed that? He goes into one synagogue and he sees a man with a withered hand. And he says, come here, come over here. And the withered man comes, walks over. He goes into this synagogue and he sees a woman that's bent over. Um, and, and so he says, woman, come over here. And then he heals her. I love that. What do you do when you come into the synagogue? What's the first thing you see? And, and what are you doing with what you see? And are you helping? Um, I think Athey Creek would be a better church um, the more we can uh, dial in how to be the person that's like Jesus saying, who can I love on? Who can I care for? Who can I pray for? Who can I touch in a way uh, that to uh, warm their hearts and make them glad that they came to church that day? Um, but it's funny, you can come to church and say, okay, what, what, is, what is in this for me? What do I get out of this? Uh, hopefully, you know, I enjoy the service. Hopefully I get a good seat. Hopefully I get a good parking space. Um, hopefully, you know, it doesn't go too long and pastor, you know, whatever your, whatever your thing is, uh, be careful. Um, I love how Jesus, the very first thing he's always looking for is the first person that he can just love on and make a difference. Uh, and Jesus, of course, has power um, to liberate this woman. Liberation for the woman. Number two, we have indignation now from the ruler. See, that's, a, that's a, the, the religious rulers and the leaders, 
They're not looking for who they can help. They're looking for who they can be critical of and cynical of. Hopefully you're not that category, coming to church looking for things you're, you can be critical of. Um, we have indignation from a ruler. We picked up in verse, um, um, uh, but by the way, before I leave verse 13, immediately she was made straight and glorified God. I love that she glorifies God. And she says, oh man, I mean, can you imagine the 18 years of being hooked over like that and now standing straight up? I just, makes me happy to hear this story. But uh, verse 14, the, um, and the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. Can you imagine that being your first response to this woman who's been 18 years hunched over and she, you see her stand up and she's healed and like, ha, indignation. Uh, this, is, this is where this dude's brain was at. Man, I hope none of our brains are like that because what a nincompoop this guy was. This poor woman was, was healed from 18 years and he's like full of indignation. Um, that's what religion looks like, by the way. Um, it says, the, the, the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, there are six days in which men ought to work. In them, therefore, come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. This guy makes a declaration in front of Jesus. Um, hey, you have six days to come and be healed. Don't be coming in here and getting healing. Like, I wonder if he, when he was saying it, if the word sounded stupid to him. Have you ever said something when, you're, when it was coming out of your mouth? Like, what a stupid thing to say. I can't believe I just said that. Uh, I wonder if this guy maybe had a little hint of that. If he didn't, he's even a worse income poop than I thought. Um, but I wonder, you know, people, you can get into the religion and you start forgetting when rules eclipse the love of God and his original intent and purpose. That, that's when you have to realize, man, I'm, I'm off course. This guy was so off course. It's embarrassing how bad off course this guy was. And remember, it was never illegal to heal someone on the Sabbath. That was just a tradition of men. That was not the law of Moses. That wasn't any part of the Old Testament. It was added by the Jewish leaders later saying, yeah, healing people's like work. On the, on the, so you can't do that on the Sabbath day. What a dumb, dumb rule, uh, a lot of dumb rules. But number three, that brings us to vindication uh, uh, when we see how this turns out. It says in verse 15, it says, then the Lord answered uh, him and said, thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed. And all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Ah, the, I love this. You know, the people are rejoicing. I wonder if they're just rejoicing because of the things he did. He healed this, this poor lady and what a glorious thing that was. It's a great part of the story. And they're rejoicing. But I wonder if they're also rejoicing thinking, wow, we're, we're not under this horrible law of these, these religious rulers you know, the poor people, they were under the ruler of the synagogue and what he made, what he told them, that's what was go. You know, you make sure and do what the ruler tells you to do and don't question him. A lot of them never read the scroll, the Torah of the Old Testament. They were all, you know, told by oral tradition and the ruler who probably read the scrolls, he was the one saying, well, the scrolls say this and so just do what I say. And, and now Jesus comes and he's saying stuff that's full of liberty he liberates the woman who is in bondage to her ailment. 
He puts down the guy who opened his mouth and it shouldn't be healing on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus said, I wonder if this guy had led his mule to the watering trough that morning. Um, you know, I, I wonder, you know, Jesus saying, yeah, you know, you hypocrite, you know, you lead your donkey uh, to the stall, from the stall to the watering. Um, shouldn't this woman, a daughter of Abraham? Implication, the person was more important than the animal even. Um, I know that goes contrary to some of the Portlandia people around here. People are more important than animals. That's important to know this. God sees us as different. We were created in his image, not animals. Um, and we are a person that are, you know, I mean, I know some of us have dogs that are um, maybe full of more soul in some ways than some of the people we know, but, um, but we shouldn't ever make that mistake. The Lord puts humanity above all animals. That's important. And, and we have dominion over the animals. It doesn't mean we're supposed to be mean to animals. Uh, we're supposed to be kind to our animals, I think, in the Bible. The Bible makes that point. But at the same time, you can eat animals. The Bible makes that point clear too. Um, but but I, I think this whole environmentalism, uh, PETA uh, thing where, you know, um, we can't eat animals and stuff like that. Um, it's funny how they put animals over people. A lot of these organizations, you know, will put animals over people. Um, that's a wrong worldview. The Bible makes a difference. But Jesus saying, man, you, at least you brought your donkey to water. How much more would a daughter of Abraham, a Jewish woman, you know, need, who needs help be helped on the Sabbath? Uh, Jesus puts that uh, you know, the people are over animals. Jesus makes that point here in a, in a sort of a way. Um, so I love the liberty that you get a sense that people are getting. Jesus is saying words of freedom. The religious ruler was saying stuff of bondage. You gotta keep the rules. And Jesus is lifting that so that no wonder the people are rejoicing. Well, verse 18 um, continues because we're still on that topic about the Sabbath, uh, the rule of the Sabbath, uh, legal question about the Sabbath. Verse 18, it says, and then said he unto the king, uh, 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 pardon me, then said he, unto what is the kingdom of God like? And whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed great, a great tree. And the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. And again, he said, whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. And then he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. What is Jesus talking about here? The kingdom of God. Um, this is uh, this little uh, snapshot Jesus gives, well, two snapshots. He gives one of the, um, you know, um, like the grain of mustard seed that grows into a big tree. But then he also talks about the, the dough that's been leavened uh, and, and the leaven sort of uh, gets into all the, all the dough and all cake, all three cakes are, you know, cooked with leaven. And then Jesus goes on teaching, like, what's that all about? Well, this is where um, some people, you know, think the mustard seed is a beautiful tree and it's a wonderful story about the kingdom. Um, but what we have to understand is um, with expositional constancy, one of the things we have to be careful of is say, is this, is this really the right interpretation? Yeah, but bread is a beautiful tree and little birds of the air land in the tree. It's wonderful. Um, if you're into what the typology is in the Bible, um, anybody remember what? What do the birds of the air typically uh, uh, speak of? Yeah, uh, Satan himself. 
Uh, remember the other parables about the birds plucking up the seed? That was Satan himself, Jesus said, the birds of the earth, the fowls of the air. Now there is a difference when we talk about the dove in the Bible, which sort of speaks to the Holy Spirit uh, there as we, as we study the scriptures. But uh, most of the time, especially in the parables, the fowls of the air is, is, is kind of a bad thing. And another thing that you should know is a mustard seed um, is not meant to be a tree. Uh, in other words, it's something that, you know, is a, supposed to be one thing, but it becomes another. And then the fowls of the air lodge in it. Would you, would you think this, this parable is about something good that's happening to the kingdom or something that's bad that's happening in the kingdom and, kingdom? and therein lies the debate. Some people say, oh, this is great. That's what we need is the kingdom to grow and birds can lodge on the branches. I don't agree with that interpretation. I believe this is a bad thing. And another reason why I believe it's bad is the second example. Um, there's something Jesus talks about that is always bad in the Bible. Does anybody remember what that is? Leaven. Leaven is always a type or a picture of sin in the Bible. I believe Jesus is giving two things that are bad things that happen to the kingdom. The kingdom's an important thing. The kingdom of God is, is a, a, a massive thing. We're, we're told to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The coming kingdom is gonna be glorious. The kingdom Jesus refers to sometimes in his ministry is interesting because is he talking about the future coming kingdom or the fact that the king is there? See, there is a kingdom even, even in Jesus' time because Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And for you to have a kingdom, there needs to be a king. But at this moment, the king is not on the throne as we look forward to someday when he's seated on the throne. But right now, the kingdom, I think Jesus is saying, we got some bad stuff happening and it's linked to what we just read. You had the religious leader of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, who is saying some hypocrisy. And Jesus says, you're a hypocrite. Um, and uh, the people are rejoicing. And Jesus is saying, yeah, the kingdom's like this. Sometimes stuff grows bigger than it's supposed to. Look at the religious system of the Jews right now that you know, Jesus is saying. And look, the birds of the air have landed in it, meaning there's evil corruption in the religious system of the Jews. I believe that's what Jesus is referring to is how it's not a good thing that the birds of the air, the fowls of the air are landing in the branches. Um, and um, this is more likely a warning about how bad things have become in the kingdom uh, as it relates to the Jewish picture. The next picture is the leaven. Um, why does he say the kingdom of God is like leaven? Um, um, you know, does something become mutated or abnormal, abnormal away from what God has initially intended it to be? Um, and the answer is yes. Um, you know, um, dominion theology, by the way, which is kingdom now, it says we need to have the kingdom today, bring in the kingdom, usher in the kingdom. It's, it's kind of a, a view that you and I as Christians need to vote for Christian officials and get rid of abortion, which we, we should try to do that. But, but if you think that's what's gonna usher the kingdom in, well, we should be depressed because things are not going well right now. I don't believe we are gonna usher in the kingdom. Daniel chapter two talks about the kingdom is coming. There's gonna be a stone cut without hands. That means human intervention is not involved and it's gonna be cut without hands, come tumbling down and wipe out the kingdoms of the world. And then there's gonna be an everlasting kingdom by that kingdom that will be set up by that stone. Daniel chapter two, it's really an amazing prophecy about how the kingdom's gonna come. It's not gonna be man ushering in the kingdom. It's gonna be Christ setting up his kingdom whenever he wants to. 
And we pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Dominion theology, um, uh, you know, it, it can look a little bit like this mustard seed situation. Um, it needs to grow and we need to expand and take over until things get better and as long, things get bigger and hopefully things get better, then Jesus will come and rule and reign. Um, I don't believe that's the picture. It's gonna get worse before it gets better. In the same way, you've got the dough and, and there's a little bit of leaven, but remember what happens when there's a little bit of leaven? What does it do? It leavens the whole lump. And when you let a little sin in, which boy, we've got that, the whole thing becomes sinful. I think Jesus, we need to have really careful and correct interpretation on, on, on the text and especially in these parables. One of the, the secrets to unlocking the meanings of the parables is what is called expositional constancy. If fowls of the air are a type of evil in the previous parables, you can be pretty sure that the fowls of the air in the next parables are gonna be also a type of evil. There's, there's a constancy in those parables Jesus taught. Are you guys seeing that? That's kind of important. Uh, well, you've got number one, verses one through nine, a political question about justice. Uh, verses 10 through 22, we have a legal question about the Sabbath and it become corrupt um, by that time. And now number three, we have a theological question about salvation, about salvation. Verse 23, we pick it up. Verses 23 through 30 is the section here. But it says in verse 23, then said one unto, uh, unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? Boy, what a good question. How many people are saved and how many people are gonna to go to heaven? Um, you know, what's interesting is a lot of people like the Jews, they don't really talk in those terms of who's gonna be saved or not saved. Um, have you ever noticed that the Jews don't even have evangelism? Like there's no such thing as really Jewish evangelism. Uh, oh, Brett, the Jews for Jesus, that's different. They're Messianic Jews who believe in salvation. But if you go to Jerusalem and find your Jew on the street, even if they're ultra-Orthodox or Hasidic Jews, uh, they're not going around evangelizing. In fact, they want you to get out of their face. They don't want to say anything to you. Um, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. But this idea of being saved is very Christian. It's a Christian thing. If you hang around Jesus long enough, you start realizing, oh, you got to be saved. Why would this guy suddenly say something about being saved? I think it has to do with unless you repent, you're going you're gonna to go down just like those other people in, in verses 1 through 5. And this guy's saying, well, then how many people are gonna be saved? This, this language is so familiar, familiar to us. You're either saved or you're, you're not. But this is kind of a new concept to these guys here in chapter 13 of Luke. You, you know, Jesus, you mentioned, unless you repent, you're gonna die just like everybody else. Who then is gonna be saved? How many people are gonna be saved? This is, this is you gotta get in the brain of the people at this time trying to ask the question. I still think it's a good question today because I wonder the same thing. How many people really will be saved? Um, you know, um, uh, and then verse 24, Jesus starts to answer that question. He says, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Hmm, that's a scary section of scripture. Uh, a little different than Matthew chapter seven. Remember in Matthew chapter seven, verses 13 and 14, um, enter ye in in the straight gate. And then Jesus adds something in Matthew. He says, for wide is the gate. We don't talk about the wide gate here in Luke. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. That's what Jesus said in Matthew. Many there be that go in thereat because straight or narrow is the gate, narrow is the way which leads unto life. 
and few there be that find it. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. So Matthew gives us maybe a little more full description of this, um, but here in verse 24, it's just Luke giving us a very short kind of version of that, but it's still equally true. Um, the biggest difference, Matthew has two gates, uh, big and little, and few that find the little gate. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Matthew says, Jesus is the only way to salvation. Here in Luke, you only have just the little gate, the straight gate. Um, you wanna get in, but you can't. That's the, that's the biggest difference uh, in Luke's account. Why wouldn't people be able to get in through the narrow gate in Luke? Um, I think the idea perhaps I would throw out to you is that you need to be willing to go through it somehow. I wonder if some people just aren't gonna be willing to go through the narrow gate. And because they're unwilling, they won't be able to. That's something we see in the Bible. And yeah, remember in John chapter 12, Jesus talked about those people, you, you would not go in, so you could not go in, be, and then you should not go in. It's like the door just closes further and further the more hard-hearted you are. Um, so uh, how do you know if you're a person, like Jesus is referring to, who's choosing to go through the straight gate? Um, uh, you know, there's a good, uh, fruit is a good indicator. We were talking about the fruit of the, of the fig tree earlier. Fruit is a good way to see that. In fact, let me show you. Uh, how do you know if you're saved, if you're the one who went through the straight gate? John, 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. I've highlighted the word believe there because this is where the rub lies in some people's version of what constitutes salvation. Are you a saved person? The Bible says, these things I've spoken to you that you believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that, that you may believe. Um, and this is where people get a little freaked out. Is Satan saved? No. no. See, you guys are smart. <laughs> Satan's not saved. Um, but does Satan believe in the existence of Jesus? Yes. So how does that work? Well, it's this word believe, and I want you to, I want you to see the, the, the Greek word for believe. It's really important to see this in 1 John 1, 5. It's the Greek word pistuo, which means to lean on fully and to entrust, to fully entrust. Um, you know, it's like leaning on with all of your weight, like if you were walking with a crutch and you were leaning on that crutch. Um, I always love it when people say, Christianity is a crutch. And I always love saying, it sure is. And it's the stretcher and the ambulance and the hospital and with all those things. Um, uh, the question is, do you lean on that crutch? Because we all need that. Um, <laughs> I, I always think of this story when I was in New Zealand with Tad. Uh, we, we had a layover in Auckland because we we're going to Vanuatu. And there's that tall building. It's kind of like the Space Needle uh, here in Seattle, but it's just taller. And when you get up there, there's a fun thing. I think the Space Needle has one of these now too, but um, there's a whole section in this tall building uh, where there's a glass floor. And, um, and I love it because um, when you get up there, nobody's walking on it. Like nobody wants to walk on the glass floor, but it's meant there to walk on. But um, I, when I was there, Tad and I were there, we, we were just standing around. There's all these people just standing in a square around the glass floor. And this little kid says, mommy, can I go out of the glass floor? She says, whatever you do, don't go out there. She's like, no way. And I kind of looked at the little kid and he looked up at me and I just walked out in the middle of the glass floor. <laughs> I kind of jumped up and down a couple times, you know, just like this. And everybody's like freaking out. And, and the little kid, this is true, Tad will be my witness. This little kid said, mom, if he can do it, anybody can. <laughs> <clears throat> 
And it's true. <laughs> Kid wasn't wrong. Um, but I would hope that I don't just compel people to walk out on the glass floor with me. I hope people will come out and be saved along with me. Because um, guess what? It holds the weight. Um, we can walk in and we can accept Jesus Christ. And guess what? If, if the Lord can save me, he can save you. Same thing. Um, I look at the Bible characters. The Lord can save Lot. Man, he can save us. Uh, you know, I, I, there's a bunch of people in the Bible that I, I can't imagine them being called saved, but the Lord calls them saved. Um, so, you know, to believe in, in Jesus Christ, that's one of the huge bits of fruit. Another way to know if you've made it through the narrow gate and are saved is 1 John 3:14. By the way, if you're wondering about this question, just read 1 John. It's a great book to confirm salvation. 1 John 3:14. we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that goes uh, loveth not his brethren abides in death. So when Jesus is saying, you're gonna die like everybody else unless you repent, the question is, well, are we saved from that death? Well, this verse answers that question. One of the evidences, now this is, this is something you and I should be really careful about. Um, one of the evidences of you being saved is that you actually love the brethren. Um, be careful, Christian, when you start going, I just don't like church people. I don't like Christians. That's become a cool thing to say because there are some bad actors in Christianity but I think it's still a problem to say, I don't love people who Jesus actually does love. Um, I, hope, I hope you don't do that. I've noticed there's a tendency for people that have been in ministry just a little bit too long maybe, and have gotten a chip on their shoulder about people. Um, I'll admit it can be hard. We need to pray for our parking lot people that they don't get too frustrated with y'all. You know, I can imagine you're out there like this way and you're like, no, I'm going that way. They're just like, God bless you. I hope they don't get callous. God bless you, you complete idiot. Uh, that's what can happen. And it doesn't just happen in the parking lot. It can happen in the counseling office. It can happen in the coffee department. It can happen in the Sunday school where people say, did you wipe my kid's snotty nose and did you change their diaper? And you're forgetting, oh, that's free childcare for like however long the service is. And, and you, you're, you're kind of chiding against the, the person who gave up time in a smelly, and touched your kid's stinking diaper. Are you kidding me? Like, it's funny how people, it's like they're so entitled. And, and, and I do worry that sometimes people in ministry can start, start kind of thinking, I just don't like Christian people. Um, be careful with that one. Because one of the evidences of salvation is you'll have a love for your brethren, even if they are little stinkers. Um, that is, uh, but if you don't have love for Christians, then you abide in death. Be careful about that. Gandhi said, you know, it's, you know Jesus I like, it's his followers I don't. Um, so that was his problem, First John chapter 3, verse 14. Well, um, another sign, by the way, if we're looking for signs of salvation, Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Are you led by the Spirit? That's just evidence, fruit, that you have taken the straight gate, the narrow gate. Um, do, you, um, do you love fellow Christians? Are you led by the Spirit? And do you believe on Jesus? Um, and, uh, and if you're still not convinced, notice what it says here in verse 24, the ver first word, strive. That's an interesting word that Jesus employs, strive to enter into the straight gate. Uh, what does that mean? Well, the word strive is worth looking at uh, in, the, in the Greek text. The word strive, it means, um, the Greek word is um, uh, where we get our word agonize. 
Because um, the word is agonadomai, uh, which means um, to contend in the gymnastic games, number one, to contend with adversaries, to endeavor with strenuous zeal. Um, and uh, the, the word, that's where our word um, agonize comes from. To agonize over something, um, the agonizing, uh, you know, uh, of itself doesn't lead to salvation. But the idea is there's, uh, you need to kind of say, I'm gonna choose uh, to contend with my adversary. The adversary doesn't want you to go down the straight gate, um, but it means to, with strenuous zeal, is the idea to go into the straight gate. So Jesus says this, strive, agonize over this. Now, you, you, again, don't think that your agonizing is what saves you. That's, that's a wrong way of thinking about it. But agonize over the question, am I one who's entered into the straight gate? Have I, have I received the free gift of salvation? And, and, and if you're not sure, it's worth agonizing over. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, so the main point here so far in verse 23 is we're seeing how this is a theological question. How many people are saved? And Jesus says, many, um, you know, uh, I say to you, will seek to enter in, but actually will not. That's kind of interesting. Then it goes on in verse 25. Um, it says, um, when once the master of the house has risen up and hath shut the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Then you shall begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not from whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. So this idea of um, man, are you, um, are you gonna make it into heaven? Have you, are you striving, agonizing over that? And Jesus is saying, you might be surprised how many people think they're gonna be able to knock on the door and the Lord say, come on in. But he'll say, man, depart from me, you wicked servant, I never knew you. Matthew's gospel has some similar language. You'll recognize this, but Luke puts it a little differently and it's worth prayer and consideration. I just don't wanna be on that uh, person. There, there's a scary mention here. They said, we, we heard you teaching in our streets. One of the mistakes a person makes is when you think because you sat and listened to a sermon that that somehow saved you or you're sitting there even taking notes, which is a wonderful thing to do, taking notes. But I, I've almost convinced myself sometimes by listening to a sermon and taking notes that I, I've actually done those things. Check, I'm doing what it says because I wrote the notes and I listened to the sermon. But the point that Jesus makes is, yeah, you heard me in the streets preaching the sermon, but somehow it never connected. It never really took root in your heart. And so I depart from me. I never knew you. There's people that are gonna think they're saved. Who are those people? today, boy, there's an interesting thought. I think there's gonna be a lot of people that go to church on Sunday, but never really repented of their sins and accepted Jesus Christ. There's a lot of churches, you, the, the Episcopal church is a church you can go to and check the box. I went to church today um, and you can feel good about it. But the problem is the Episcopal churches I've seen and read about and look into, they do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ where you need to repent of your sins and accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. And it's just not the way they do it. Um, uh, be careful. 
Uh, I think Catholics have to be careful because I do know faithful Catholics who love Jesus. And I, I do believe there are people that just love Jesus. But there are some people who think, well, because I'm Catholic, I'm saved. I'm Catholic, and so I'm going to heaven. Um, that'd be just like the same mistake of a person. I go to Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. Now, Catholics would never say, if you belong to Athey Creek, that makes you a Christian. Um, uh, some of my Catholic friends say, people that go to Athey Creek are going to a nice little Bible study. That's great, good for them. But they really should get back to mass and do the Catholic thing. That's the way they view it. Um, we're not a real church, according to Catholicism. If you actually ask the people who are, are uh, in the know on that, in the Catholic circles, but I would say that could be equally true at Athey Creek where people just because they come here doesn't make you a Christian. But in the same way, I think it's even more dangerous because the Catholics do sort of let the parishioners believe, hey, if you've gone to mass enough and you've done your thing and you know, uh, got the beads and stand up, sit down, kneel, stand up, sit down, kneel, if you do all that stuff, then you're in, you're in. Uh, but Jesus, I think is saying, no, you're not. Uh, you gotta believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you gotta confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus, that he died on the cross and that he rose again. Uh, make sure you make that part of that entering in the straight gate. Well, this final section here, uh, number one, a political question about justice. Number two, a legal question about the Sabbath. Number three, a theological question about salvation and who's saved. But we end uh, with a personal question about danger, as it turns out. Let's take a look, verse 31. It says, the same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, get thee out and depart hence for Herod will kill thee. Do you think these Pharisees are saying this out of concern for Jesus? You better get out of here. Herod's gonna kill you. Just like they did, he did John the Baptist. This is the same Herod. And by the way, Jesus is now in that region down where John the Baptist was uh, on the other side of the Jordan River, which is actually modern day Jordan. Today, Jesus was there in Jordan. Uh, on the east side of the Jordan River. And they're saying, man, you, you probably better get out of Dodge because the same guy that killed Jay the Bee is gonna get you as well. Um, and so they're, they're warning him about Herod. So what does Jesus do in the face of danger? Um, check it out, verse 32. And he said unto them, go ye and tell that fox, behold, I cast out devils and I do cures today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. Um, what do you think he's talking about here? Now this is pretty funny because the word fox here is in the feminine. Uh, I just think that's funny. Um, it's actually the word vixen uh, is, is what Jesus text technically uses here. Tell that female dog fox thing over there. Do you think he's afraid of Herod? Uh, I don't get the sense Jesus is afraid of Herod. And he's saying, don't forget to tell him I'm casting out demons and I do cure, I'm healing people. I do it today, I do it tomorrow. And on the third day, I shall be perfected. What is he referring to there, anybody? The resurrection, you know. Jesus is not afraid of him because Jesus already knows you can kill me, but I'm gonna raise up from the dead no matter what happens. He already knows that. So he's not afraid at all. I love that. Verse 33, nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Um, interesting, Jesus says, um, why does he say all the prophets are perishing in Jerusalem? All the prophets die in Jerusalem. That's where they always rejected them. They always rejected the prophets in Jerusalem, um, whether it's Jeremiah or the others. They were all Isaiah. They were rejected in Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, I'm gonna be rejected just like the old prophets. Remember the parable of the farmer who sent his prophets, the servants? And we talked about this last week. 
and they killed them. And, and the farmer said, I'm gonna send my son. And then they killed him. It's the same picture. Jesus said, you killed the prophets in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where I'm gonna die is what he's saying right here. So verse 34, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He changes the subject from Herod wanting to kill him and all that weirdness. Now he's, he's going, oh, Jerusalem. You get a sense that his heart is breaking for Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings and you would not. This is the heart of Jesus. Um, and for the Jews, he says, oh, Jerusalem. Here are these guys, these Jews in Jerusalem. They're, they're rejecting him. They rejected the prophets. And Jesus is saying, how often would I have, Jesus is God, remember that. So when they rejected Jeremiah, you know, when they rejected Isaiah and all these other prophets, Jesus was there. He's saying, don't you guys realize I would have, when you were rebelling against me, I would have covered you as a mother hen. But in their rebellion, the Lord said, okay, you're on your own. And that's why all the nations trounced the Jews. That's why the Jews were under the Roman rule that very day because of their own rebellion. Had they been faithful to the Lord, I'm pretty sure the Lord would have covered them from the Roman empire but it's exactly what the Bible says would happen. If you reject me, the Lord says that I'm gonna lift my hand of blessing and protection and you'll be on your own. And the Jews never did very well when they were on their own, that's for sure. And so Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, you get us kind of a heartache toward, toward the Jews. Verse 35, behold your house, that's the temple in Jerusalem, your house is left unto you desolate. And verily I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Um, of course, this is a, um, this is a quote uh, from Psalm um, 118, verse 26. And this is what they would call out on the Palm Sunday. They'd say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. It's a prophetic Psalm. Um, now, um, the Jews are, uh, their temple is in desolation. Uh, not only in this time, it was pretty defiled by that time by politicians like Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest. They were all a bunch of wackos. And so the, the, Jesus is right. But um, has the temple situation in Jerusalem uh, improved since this day? No, it's only gotten worse. What's sitting where the temple is uh, was back in those days now? The Dome of the Rock Shrine and Al-Aqsa Mosque is on the Temple Mount today. Um, and uh, it's sitting in desolation. There will come a time where, um, when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, we'll be taken. The church of Jesus Christ will be raptured, seven years of tribulation. In the middle of that tribulation, the temple will be rebuilt, only to be defiled by Antichrist himself, abomination of desolation. Um, and then uh, destruction comes on pretty much the whole world at that point. They're all gonna fight against Jerusalem. And that's the battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation, second coming of Christ. And after the second coming of Christ, Christ is gonna restore the temple in Jerusalem. There's a millennial kingdom temple that will be built. If you wanna read what that looks like, read the book of Ezekiel. It tells us all about that millennial kingdom temple where Jesus will rule and reign. He's gonna come and rule and reign from a temple in Jerusalem. So Jesus knows the future of what's gonna happen, but he's, he, you can almost get a sense, oh, it's so sad to see the situation that's there right that moment. It was horrible. Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Um, that's, that's sad because I think that same notion is today. Jerusalem today is still largely Jews gathered in unbelief. They still don't believe in the Lord. They're still out of the covering of the wing of the Lord. Um, you say, but Brett, they're sort of blessed. 
they're, they're blessed in that they're, the Lord is regathering. The bones of Ezekiel 36 are gathering together, but there's still no soul and, and uh, they're, they're not alive yet. When will the Jews come, come to life spiritually? The Bible says it's during that tribulation period. That's when they're gonna come to life again. So um, that, that's, that's why you and I, when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, like the psalmist declares, we're really just praying for the second coming of Christ to restore Jerusalem and to restore the Jews back to good standing with God the Father. That's gonna be a glorious day. So the whole story for us is good. Rapture the church, there's no problem I'm dealing with today that the rapture doesn't solve. Um, I'd love the rapture to happen today, that'd be great. But if it doesn't, we just keep plugging away, serving the Lord and being faithful until he comes, amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for this uh, section of scripture once again. Here, uh, chapter 13, we're, see we're seeing just answers of life, answers what's happening in Jerusalem, answers to salvation, uh, the Sabbath, all these things that um, are curious issues. Um, I I'm just so thankful for such perfect answers that Jesus was giving in these difficult times. Um, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't um, allow... Um, ourselves to become so religious that we lose the, the love that we're supposed to have one for another. Help us to love one another. Lord, you tell us in your word, you'll know you're my disciples by your love one for another. May we be people who love your church, people of your church, even though we're flawed, even though we're imperfect and uh, we have weird ones among us. I pray that we'd still love one another and do that well. Give us strength to do that, Lord. Um, I pray your blessing on these who've taken time on a Wednesday night to go through scripture. May it bring forth good fruit in Jesus' name. Amen.